Welcome to the Logos of Experience and Truth podcast, where I unlock the mysteries of the beatific vision of God. This is the ancient yet ever-present path of discovering your inner freedom and unlimited potential to achieve your goals now. Check the episode description for a link to the podcast page at logosofexperienceandtruth.com where you can navigate this episode with time-stamped show notes. Let us begin. Welcome back to these, the discussions of the Logos of Christ. Today's episode might feel a bit scatterbrained. In thinking about the various topics I've covered, there's a few things I want to round out as I continue filling in the gaps, as I stated I would do in an earlier episode. Then hopefully, what I'd like to get to is the discussion of that which I referred to at the start of each episode, the Logos, the Christ. After such an in-depth discussion of the true self, as well as the mind, or our inner mentality, mental activity, or the world of the mind, it only makes sense to now discuss the mind of God, the Logos, or the second person of the Trinity, the Christ. First thing, though, is I wanted to clear up a couple things I said in the previous episode. Though I still didn't look up if it was Maimonides or Spinoza that spoke of the reality of the mind, I was led to Descartes as being the one that spoke of what do we actually know of reality beyond the contents of our mind. Now what do I mean that I was led to it? After recording the previous episode on the indescribability of God, I had yard work to do. I like listening to an audiobook while I do my yard work, and when we return to the phase I call the mustard seed of hope, I will go further in depth regarding learning and knowledge and how going from reading with the eyes to reading with the ears absolutely exploded my literary brain. Anyways, I have 165 books in my Audible library, many of which I've listened to and the rest that are quickly becoming my massive audiobook backlog, which I imagine occurs to many other readers as well. So for some strange reason, the history book I was trying to listen to titled The Silk Roads wouldn't load. I uninstalled it and tried reinstalling it, and then it wouldn't download. I thought it weird, said whatever, and then decided to find something else to listen to. I scrolled down to the beginning of my Audible library and said to myself, well, let's see if there's anything from three years ago that I have yet to listen to. And there were two books from when I first started listening to books on Audible that I had yet to listen to. Now, I guess book is the wrong word, though, since these are great courses, audio lectures that are on Audible. So I had two options, a course on Alexander the Great or a science-based course called Redefining Reality, the Intellectual Implications of Modern Science. And I'm sure you can guess which one I chose. Now, I purchased this course three years ago within the first month of having Audible since when I signed up. It was like a month prior to Black Friday. Right around this time, actually, in a little synchronous nod to the past since I'm recording this on November the 1st. So naturally, I'd loaded up on books and especially on great courses, lecture series back then, and this was one I'd bought. So what are the chances that on this day, I'd be done listening to Stephen Fry's awesome mythos book where, like him, and obviously if you listen to my episode on the planet Jupiter and the constellation of Libra, I'm very much a lover of and knowledgeable on the Greek and Roman myths, having spent my elementary years up to 6th grade in Santa Monica with the Getty Museum always just a field trip away. I will return in great detail regarding myth, especially Greek myth, 
especially regarding the mystical experience of what was seen, and in particular, why what I saw is what I saw. It has a lot to do with this early upbringing and my study of Greek myth from as early as the second grade. So what are the chances I'd finish this book the night prior, talk about reality in the recording during the next day, and then choose this science course to listen to after having it sit on my audible backlog for three years? And that in the very first lecture, the very first one, the lecturer would start by discussing Descartes and his pondering on what we actually know to be true or reality beyond that which exists in our own individual mind. I'm sure a mathematician could figure out that probability. Out of the 165 books in my Audible library, 63 are unread. I have two credits that I could have used to purchase something. Since I read mystical and religious and historical stuff, you'd have to, what's the right word? permutate the numbers of those books that I could have potentially selected with my two credits to start to read on this day. Plus, Audible recently enhanced their membership and now includes many free books that also now become options or possibilities. And I'd actually had a mind to find a free book to listen to since I'm planning on canceling the membership by the end of the first week of November since, well, I have 63 books in my backlog that need to be listened to. Why keep the membership with so many books to complete? But for some reason, I chose this great course lecture series, and it literally provided me with an answer to a question I just pondered and discussed in the recording I'd done that day. Maybe the word reality in the title triggered in my mind to select it since I'd used that word in my own recording, right? It makes an unconscious type of sense. And yet at the same time, one has to be aware enough of their intuition or unconscious mind, to which I was aware enough of said intuition, having learned to be aware of and listen to it, the inner voice within, the Jiminy Cricket voice of conscience we'd spoken about in an earlier episode, and most importantly, to listen to and follow its guidance, since my first reaction towards its urging me to listen to this lecture series was, why do I want to listen to some boring science crap right now? But I followed its guidance in doing so, gave me an answer to the question I'd asked myself earlier. So right there, a little bit of the synchronicity occurring, not in the past in some journal entry I'm quoting, but immediately. My telling you that I began to listen to this science lecture series may have you wondering just how much science I have studied and or listened to, especially when I was honest enough to compare that I won't know as much about science as the scientists, just as they don't know as much about mysticism, symbolism, and mythology as I do. But there are several meeting points between the two. The only reason I bring this up is because upon the creation and completion of my database of journal writing about these, the mystical mysteries of myself, it was something I was already pondering since I began to see in this lengthy self-examination the life of the mysteries as a mystic, something I'd learned while in college, immediately after my awakening experience during the expansion of the mind. At that time, I was taking anthropology, cultural anthropology or sociology, I can't actually remember the exact name of the class, and evolutionary psychology at the same time. So what I was pondering in the present moment was if I'd been unconsciously influenced by especially my cultural anthropology class 19 years ago, 
since my teacher had done a study on the life of police officers over a 20-year period. And here I was, looking over 20 years of notes on the life of a person that has had mystical experiences, the various stages that occur to such a person, and what that has led to. These were also advanced honors college courses, so you can imagine how many books were read just for the classes, but I remember also buying and reading several massive books on science as well. At the time, scientists were searching for the potential theory of all, something that underlined everything in science. Not sure if they still are or are not engaged in this, but one of the theories they had back then was something called string theory. I don't remember the theory itself at all. All I know is when my wife was in her pre-med courses several years later, she came across this theory and that the science community had pretty much drowned it in the ocean. I asked her why and she'd said that it was too mysterious and mystical sounding to be seen as true science or something of that order. I bring this up now because the only thing I remember about string theory was that it had to do with vibration. That these little potential circular filaments of light at the foundation of existence could expand and contract based on how they were vibrating. I have no memory of how this theoretically worked scientifically in the construct of the theory itself. What I do know, however, is that when you are nearing the goal of the mystic, as I mentioned in my ascending experience and will further mention in many more of the experiences I've had, that there is a vibration that occurs in the brain. This is another sign that something different than the normal human experience is occurring. And if I toss it out here right now and in the future dive deeper into this, it is this vibration, the sound that it creates, that is the basis for the OM in the Eastern tradition, as well as the Amen in the Western tradition. Since if you chant the Amen or listen to it chanted the way I have from listening to Gregorian chants, the vibrating sound made between the OM and the OM is exactly the same sound and is the sound that most closely mimics the sound of, well, what has been called the sound or the voice or the song of creation with literary versions of this found in the Song of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia or the Song of Iluvatar in the Cimmerillion, with each one starting the physical world of Narnia on the one hand, or starting the physical world of Tolkien and eventually the Middle Earth of the Lord of the Rings on the other hand. Now that will be an entire other section at some point, mysticism in popular culture, though I've already mentioned Marvel and the Watcher character, and if I wasn't clear, the Watcher character symbolized in my mind on this day, similar to how the Buddha referred to it as the lord of his ego, that aspect of the ego that tries to be the overseer of the mind. I've mentioned Neo and the Matrix and the Oracle, and now the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings. But we'll go more in depth once we get to it and after you've understood more of the movements that occur in the mystical experiences as a whole. Now, this vibration experience denotes when you are entering into the mystical state in one form of its experience, but there is another that, for lack of a better word or idea, is like tuning oneself to the spiritual, or to use the Eastern tradition ideas, is like opening your chakras up or cleansing them. I know I've spoken quite against New Agey type of ideas, but there really isn't a Western equivalent to at least this 
other than negative and evil urban myths and legends from the intensely superstitious Middle Ages, which I will definitely mention as what this experience was probably turned into within the myths of the Middle Ages. Now, also, when I break down some of the biblical visions, I will show how this sound accompanied and was documented by the biblical visionaries as well. It's just more difficult to decipher the way the writers or the prophets described it in the Bible, but it's there. So no wonder science killed this string theory that was based on vibration. It was nearing too close to emerging into the mystical and the spiritual. Now this concept of vibration is extremely esoteric. The work that comes to mind is the little esoteric book called the Kibalion. This work goes to great depths, speaking about vibration as a law or quality of the universe. Now, even though I rather enjoy this work, I'm not entirely sure how it fits into the Hermetic tradition, since when I read this work alongside the Corpus Hermeticum, or the Hermetica, the traditional text of the Hermetist, they don't seem to be of the same mind, meaning it doesn't seem like the authors derive their material for the Kibalion from the Corpus Hermeticum, since the two actually sound quite different. Now, in the Kabbalion, the writers state they are quoting a work called the Kabbalion. So even though the title of the esoteric work is the Kabbalion, it isn't actually the Kabbalion, but a summarizing of some mythical text called the Kabbalion. So it's kind of weird. I've never seen another text called the Kabbalion, so I have no idea what this other work might be. But compared to the Corpus Hermeticum, the two don't seem to have much to do with the other, though they're both considered hermetical works or works having to do with or derived from teachings attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. Now, I've mentioned this name several times, so in case you're unaware of the history of this work of either possibly many different teachers lumped into one or a single purely legendary spiritual teacher, again, since certain elements are typically left out of history class, for whatever reason, but this, the Corpus Hermeticum, alongside Plato and Aristotle, was the other work that the Byzantium Romans brought to the Western Latin Catholic Roman Empire after the fall of Constantinople to the Turks in 1453. It was this work, alongside Plato and Aristotle, that gave rise to the Renaissance, with Hermes even honored in a few of the mega-Renaissance cathedrals in, I think, Florence or Tuscany. It was from this work that the sciences were reborn in Western Europe, for this work is the basis for alchemy, which we discussed previously. And again, for those that know about Newton, which I mentioned as well, he was supposedly translating the Emerald Tablets, which was the alchemical work of, supposedly again, Hermes Trismegistus and the Hermetical tradition. Now, my stance on these texts is it's difficult to cut through fact from fiction. The scholars and the introductions in the text themselves claim that the texts were written thousands and thousands of years ago, that the hermetical mysteries and texts are actually the secret Egyptian mystery or mystical texts and far predate the Older New Testament, with Hermes sometimes seen as either a contemporary to Abraham, teacher to Abraham, or even for a time was seen as Enoch from the super old Genesis story, and the texts were even called Enochian for a while. One part of me wants to see the truth in this, since if you consider that Jacob went down to Egypt, Moses was in Egypt and then left Egypt with knowledge and wisdom of God, and then in the New Testament, Jesus flees to Egypt, 
and even the saying you read most from his mouth that curiously doesn't appear prior to the New Testament, the Amen itself, is literally a differently spelled rendition of Amun, one of the primary gods in ancient Egypt, and is even in the name of the pharaoh, Amenhotep. So there is definitely a link between the two cultures and their deeper inner spiritual mysteries. Either Jacob, Moses, and Jesus all went down to Egypt to gain wisdom and learning, and the biblical text is simply alluding to this in a literary manner regarding them going to Egypt or not. And I'm just reading into it, wanting to see the connection because of the great respect I have for these hermetical texts. Because when the scholar and historian in me has to look at the facts, that the earliest copies of Hermetic literature aren't until the 2nd century AD, which places it, in my mind, alongside Neoplatonism and Plotinus, and Gnosticism to a degree, as Greco-Roman and Egyptian, or the traditional religions of the Mediterranean during this time, as the responses they created and generated to the Christian movement, pagan responses to the explosion that erupted in the Mediterranean world from the Christ and the mysteries of the Christ. Now, this is no different than the believer in me understanding that regardless of the propaganda, that the biblical texts in their current form aren't any older than 5th or 6th century BC, with the texts or stories being produced or reproduced either during or after the Babylonian exile, since the rational part of my mind can't for the life of me see Nebuchadnezzar allowing the scribes, the rich, the elite, the priestly and royal court members of Jerusalem at the time, or those that were exiled to Babylon after Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, I just can't imagine them being allowed to keep any of their biblical scrolls or writing. That's simply not what conquerors throughout all time, all cultures have done. They typically destroy any and all writings in order to begin the process of re-education of the conquered into the new order of things under the new ruler or conqueror. So even though the oldest copies of the Old Testament Bible we have are actually the Dead Sea Scrolls, which in case you didn't know why those were so important, that's why, because it gave the world the oldest copies of the Hebrew Bible text Christians call the Old Testament. The writings within them wouldn't have been based on writings prior to the Babylonian exile since those scribes and priests would have needed to have rewritten them entirely from memory again either during the exile in Babylon or immediately after when they returned to Jerusalem. Now yes, the stories go back way farther than that and are histories of their people and reference the time periods they reference, but whatever the version of those stories may have been prior is most certainly not the version of the stories we have now, since they would have been rewritten now with the filter of the trauma of seeing your homeland destroyed, your people, yourself included, tossed into slavery and driven to another country filled with strange gods and the apparent failure of your own god in preventing this. For instance, you don't get the Shatan, the Satan, until after this time period appearing in the text. Why is that important? Because Babylonians were dualists. Equal evil god, equal good god in Zoroastrianism, Ahura Mazda and Ahriman. Prior to this, which is even kept in the biblical text, God is solely responsible for both good and evil that befalls mankind. So there's some kind of split that occurs during and after the exile in the theology of the ancient Hebrews with the opposing entity of Satan now entering into the text. 
It's one of the reasons why I've wondered why God is shown as so vengeful and destructive in the text, because one has to consider the mind state of those destroyed souls that had to remember everything in the text in the process of rewriting them through the lens of depressed enslavement. Again, this is just my own theory regarding the text, and I'm only using this as a comparison to show how I tend to view the hermetical text. Those that are proponents of the text say they're much older than scholarship has shown. It's possible and probable and a certainty that the mysteries existed in Egypt prior to 2nd century AD, considering their deep and ancient religiosity. And there's definitely something going on between the two cultures, ancient pre-Hebrews and Egyptians. Their history speaks of the same as well. I think the Hyksos were the names recorded in Egyptian history and are seen as possible peoples from the land of Canaan that migrated into Egypt, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Their name may be something else. You have to forgive me, but you'll learn I'm terrible at names. But I remember the general concept that historically and archaeologically, they found records of people from the land of Canaan, where Abraham and Jacob in particular would have come from. Being in Egypt around the time period, this biblical story would have taken place from a biblical timeline and thus some credence to the story itself, and if not the story itself, at least to there being Canaanites or Hebrew precursors living in and communing with Egypt. The Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten is the world's first recorded monotheist. Though again, looking at a timeline, this pharaoh and Moses seem to converge around the same time. Freud wrote a book about this linking Moses to pharaoh Akhenaten, and interestingly, I never read the book, only came across it after pondering the similarities between the two. Now, if you add the story of Sargon of Akkad, an extremely older story of a Mesopotamian king that was abandoned by his parents in a wicker basket in the river, you've got the full story of Moses. But still, even though there is no evidence for Moses having been a real person, embedded in the comparison of these two, if you consider that Pharaoh Akhenaten would have had followers and that at his death, these followers probably would have fled Egypt instead of returning to the old gods or were forced out by the old priestly guard, having now reassumed command of their religious worldview with the now heretic monotheist pharaoh dead, and that these fleeing followers would probably have had a leader, some type of monotheist priest, I would imagine, then again, you can sort of make out the possibility of Moses at the very least being based on actual fact. Now, this is another subject we'll dive into at another time. So, though there is some stuff that would lead me to believe the Hermetic texts are far older than what we've got, that would just be legendary and not factual. I see these texts as responses to the Christian movement, much like Neoplatonism was, of pagan philosophers attempting to carve out theories and structures from their ancient texts and beliefs into a manner similar to what was being produced by the Christians. And if these hermetic texts are far older than this 2nd century AD timeline, then that is the fault of the keepers of the text or ancient wisdom or knowledge for not having made this more available to others throughout the ages. I think I mentioned my theory regarding this, but since I can't remember exactly, I'll state it again. Those that seek to keep secrets by the law of karma or divine justice will eventually have those secrets lost and kept even from themselves. I think I went off on a pretty wide tangent there, so let me get back on track. I'd spoken about eternity on a previous episode, and again, later that day, or on the next day, in another synchronous type event, I was looking for a text in the Bible that I quoted in the Indescribability of God episode, and came across this one, which is essentially a speech on eternity that I gave. Luke 20, 37-38. 
that the dead will rise, even Moses made known in the passage about the bush when he called Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. How else can God see all as alive simultaneously, and that God is the God of the living, not the dead, than through seeing in this eternal manner I described? Now in the present moment, simultaneously, is all of what we call time, with the master of this, the king of this, God, outside, looking in, and sometimes inside, dwelling and looking from within. Next, I said I'd get to more conscious and unconscious type of talk, but I think I need to show the biblical aspects of no thought that I spoke about first, especially for my Christian brothers and sisters that perhaps don't want to hear it from a saint or from the Buddha. What did Christ have to say about this beyond my interpretation of they do not see the kingdom of heaven as a play on words regarding seeing and not seeing? So let's get into this and maybe I'll still have time to get into the Logos itself. So this is wrapped up in the story of the rich young man or the rich official found in all three canonical texts, Matthew, Mark, Luke. So I'll read Luke's, but they're all pretty much the same. At least Jesus' response is basically the same in each. So this is the rich official in Luke 18, 18 to 25. An official asked him this question, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he replied, All of these I have observed from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There is still one thing left for you. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became quite sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him, now sad, and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So on the surface, this seems pretty cut and dry. If you're rich, sell your stuff, give to the poor, follow Christ, inherit eternal life. But this is actually kind of a head-scratcher at deeper glance, especially if you take a macro view of this scenario. What if everybody did this in order to follow Christ? And then if you combine this with St. Paul saying the best is to remain celibate, the best is to desire nothing but Christ, then what will we be left with in the world? Broke-ass people left and right seeking to only follow Christ, Crops failing since nobody would be doing the work required to grow food since they're all poor disciples of Christ giving everything away. The end of humanity since no more marriage, no more sex, all celibacy all day every day. The human species would literally end in a generation if everybody did this, following the topical layer of what these words mean since how would you know if you are or aren't rich if everybody gave away their possessions to the poor to follow Christ? If there's one person poorer than you are on earth, that would make you rich compared to that person. So this saying from Christ essentially applies to every single person, not just what we imagine as rich, like a decadent hedonist celebrity or some royal personage or something like that, something which I'm sure all rich, wealthy Christians have struggled with when reading this and other similar texts if they're actually true believers. This text clearly means something else. Poverty, religious poverty, has to mean something more than just living and being like the poor externally and physically, since in my mind, that always seemed like more of a mockery of the poor, 
especially to those that didn't do it to the degree of like St. Francis of Azizi, since he wasn't just pretending to be poor, he became poor. In order to understand this, one has to be comfortable with and understand obsession or addiction, either through deep study or through its destruction and or use in one's own self. And we'll get to more on that later as well. How easy is it to, for instance, pour down a bottle of liquor into the sink to do away with it compared to ridding oneself of the thought or desire for that liquor? How easy is it for someone to break up with another in a bad relationship compared to ridding oneself of the thoughts and memories of that person? I'm not saying performing the physical act isn't a difficult thing to do, but the Herculean task of altering the mind to no longer desire what was once desired, especially if it became an addiction, is vastly more difficult to accomplish. The wealth that is to be sold off, the wealth that Jesus is speaking of, is the wealth in the mind, the desires in the mind, the thoughts in the mind, the obsessions in the mind, those things that occupy our mind, the past, the present, the future, all those things that ensnare us mentally. I like to call these the syndicated reruns when they're the same tired and used mental creations, the same episodes of The Simpsons in my mind from 20 years ago trying to replay themselves over and over again, day after day inside of our thoughts. Those are the things that we hold on to. Those are the things that are true wealth. Those are the things the wealthy or those endowed with many thoughts cannot let go of in order to enter the kingdom of heaven like the rich official in the gospel story, which is why Jesus also says, you must die to yourself in order to be reborn in the kingdom of heaven, since giving this aspect of our mentality up, again, if we consider the know thyself solution we wound up with, this is the self that must die in order to be reborn. Now perhaps actual wealthy persons, monetarily speaking, do have a harder time since they naturally will have many more things they may be attached to externally, which can and almost always translates to being attached to them internally, and thus the reason for the constant poor versus wealth comparisons, which is still valid in the gospel story, but Jesus is always pushing us to think deeper since true wealth is in thought. Pretty much every single modern book about wealth starts with one's thoughts. That is where wealth begins. So giving this away to the poor, meaning helping others to learn to be wealthy, is storing up treasure in heaven. Or how to use one's thoughts properly, since what is Jesus actually telling the rich official to do? He's telling him to be his disciple and follow him by going and teaching others what he's learned about following the commandments, since that's the response the rich official gives, that he's observed all of the commandments. But what's implied is he hasn't done anything with his dedication and observance to the commandments and he has to give his wealth away and thus follow Christ. Again, that's my interpretation of that gospel story. There was another bit of the gospel that ties into this, but I can't remember off the top of my head right now. So I'll probably remember it and talk about it again down the line. This episode is getting kind of lengthy, but considering I spoke about Hermeticism and the Kibalion, it's a nice transition into finishing this out by discussing the Logos. The Hermetic text provides a nice little response for how the universe could emerge from a Big Bang that itself emerges from nothing. It's a simple answer, that it is through thought or mentality that if you look at yourself, your own mind, if you think of something, you've just created something in your mind from nothing, and thus utilizing the law of correspondence, the ancient maxim of the Hermetist, as above, so below, 
as below, so above. If we're capable of this mental manifestation in our own mind, then surely God is as well, simply at a far greater scale or degree than we are, with God's thought capable of instantaneously becoming something. I always like Muhammad's way of saying this in the Quran. God says, be, and it is. And the same idea is also written in the Bible as well. Are we not made in the image of God? So the question should then be, how are we made in the image of God? Again, the same question is tied to the exploration of self following the Greek maxim of know thyself in order to answer this. If our truest, or that which is most likely our truest self, is some type of neurological, transmitting, electrical, energy-based impulse system within our brains that travels through our nervous system, and somehow, somewhere within this, the mind, consciousness, is contained or is merged into this electrical sphere of energy, then if this is our truest self, that which we are most like, then it would be this that is the image of God. Now, obviously, as a Christian, a believer in Christ, and with the Catholic worldview surrounding this, something occurred with the body. Something was elevated with the body, the physical, with Christ, the Logos, entering into the world and elevating the body itself with the image of God within, elevating the temple of the Spirit, which is what the body is compared to in St. Paul, alongside the Spirit of man, which is the image of God. And yet this says that when God, if we can say, pictured himself, he pictured himself as man, as Christ. We can even say that when in Genesis it says God walked around in Eden with Adam and Eve, that it was this mortal-looking human form of Christ that was walking around. Now that's just the theology surrounding the elevation of the physical by Christ, rising body and spirit into heaven. These are just assumptions that we can make from that. But the creation of that image of man came from this true self of energy mental existence. How is this so? I won't read the entire Nicene Creed right now, but just in regards to Christ, so that you can understand how and why Christ is the Logos, or the mind, or in the ancient sense, the reason of God. Reason being that Greek and Roman concept and idea of mind that is elevated, more than just the gross, desirous type of mind. The mind of one's genius, the genius within, as they saw it back then. The holier mind, the eternal mind. Here's the creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. Again, knowledge of the self reveals knowledge of God. They go hand in hand. Before I thought, before thought entered into my mind, I existed. It's why I actually disagree with Descartes' I think, therefore I am, since if you can stop thinking, it's not like you burst and vanish from existence. It's the opposite. I am, therefore I think. But when I do think, it's not that the inner voice, the inner thought, didn't exist prior it would have always been there. It was simply not exercised or seen or experienced until I consciously thought inside of myself, until I thought using the image of the word, the Logos, the indwelling Christ. I know it's preposterous to even consider what it was like for God in some eternal time period at some point. I know it is. But try to imagine that God was kicking it up in heaven and then at some point thinks. 
when God the Father thinks within whatever it is we can think of as God's self or as God choosing or as God thinking. Again, preposterous thoughts, but how else can we dive into these concepts? God thinks to himself and that thought of himself, that reason, that logos, or as the Gospel of John puts it, the word is. This is why Christ is begotten, not made, because Christ simply issues forth is the word or the logos of the Father. When the Father thinks of him, the Christ, God the Father is thinking of himself. Obviously, we're talking eternity again, eternal time. So the question is, when had God not thought of himself? But that's how masterfully our church fathers understood this reality and truth of the eternally begotten, not made Christ. If you can understand this, then you can also understand the rest of the creed. How is Christ consubstantial with the Father because he's the mind of God. And in our equation of know thyself, what our true self is, thus the same between Christ and God the Father. How is Christ equal to the Father? Because he's the mind of the Father, the Logos, the Word. Christ is the true self of God the Father. He is the Father's inner self, which always was and is. How is the Father the maker of heaven and earth? but then all things are made through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the mind, the logos, the reason, the word of God the Father, and the universe is thought into existence through Christ. And since it's thought into existence, Christ being the seat of thought itself, mind itself, the logos itself, the word itself of God the Father himself, thus all things are made through him, through the Word, the Logos, the Christ, the mind of God, the second person of the Trinity. This is how the universe is made from nothing, because it is thought into existence by the very mind of God, by the Word, by the Christ. And it is in His image, the Christ, the Logos, the mind of God, we were made, the mind and Word of God, the true self that we understood by knowing ourselves in the last episode. And this answers another biblical enigma of why are there two creation stories in Genesis? Because the first is the creation of this, the true self, this that is made in God's image, made in the image of the Word or the Logos or the Christ or the mind of God. And the second story of creation in Genesis is the creation of the body, which is why it's the second creation story when God uses clay to mold the body, and then breathes his spirit. The created image of the word in the first account of creation in Genesis, since though image, it is still himself in a reflected sort of manner, and breathe this into the molded clay or Adam. This also answers the enigma of the male and the female, why Jesus says we're like the angels in heaven without marrying, or why St. Paul says no male or female but one in Christ. Because the image of God is neither male nor female, just as it is both male and female. It is the body that is split apart and set into divisions, one as giver, one as receiver, just as there are two aspects to the mind, one that receives or is the fertile soil in which seeds or ideas and thoughts are planted, and one that gives or the farmer planting the seeds, the male and female qualities of mind. Just as the male and female qualities of the body exist, one is in the internal, the other in the external. 
This is why God is neither male nor female, while also being both male and female. Why there's the motherhood of God found in the Bible. And when we get to my experience of the Holy Spirit, I did not see he, the Holy Spirit, but her, the Holy Spirit. And yet there are others that see he, the Holy Spirit, and not her, the Holy Spirit. This is why, and if we continue with the creed, the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and the Son and is adored and glorified, and why the Holy Spirit is both the impregnator as well as the impregnated with the special status of the Virgin Mary and the incarnation of the Christ himself. For the Christ, the male mind of God, is seated into the Holy Spirit, the female mind of God, in order to enter into physical existence. Cut and dry, this is the mystery of the Trinity. One in three, three in one, one alone. Now, I will admit that the Holy Spirit is the most mysterious of the three, the most difficult to understand because of this sometimes appearing male-ish and sometimes appearing female-ish in nature. Since as some of the mystical saints have noted, especially in the Eastern Orthodox traditions, the Holy Spirit comes as it comes to each individual, and it's based entirely on one's life experiences. So there are reasons why, for instance, I didn't see a male Holy Spirit, nor a vision of the Virgin, but something I was utterly not expecting to see in the least bit. And we'll dive far deeper into that in another episode. Until next time. Thank you for listening. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. I have close to a thousand pictures at logosofexperienceandtruth.com under the vision section that show what is perceived by the human mind during a mystical experience. Every culture across the entirety of time has depicted the experience with the same foundational pattern, including science in modernity. Click the link in the episode description or search for logosofexperienceandtruth.com so you can see for yourself and confirm or refute my claims. Please share this podcast with those that are like-minded and click a like on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you again.